Hello, everybody, and welcome to Singularity One-on-One. On, one on one. This is a feature of SingularityWeblog.com, where you can go and listen to it or download it in full. Today, my guest on the show is Ben Gertzel. Ben has so many titles, positions, and responsibilities that I will actually have to read all of those from a piece of paper. So if you can bear with me for 30 seconds so that we don't miss anything from his uh, distinguished biography. Um, so Dr. Ben Gertzel is CEO of AI software company Novamente and bioinformatics company Biomind, chief technology officer of biopharma firm Genesiant Corporation, leader of the open source OpenCog AI software project, chairman of Humanity Plus, advisor to the Singularity University and Singularity Institute, research professor in the Fujian Key Lab for Brain-like Intelligence Systems at Xiamen University, China, and general chair of the Artificial General Intelligence Conference Series. His research work encompasses artificial general intelligence, natural language processing, cognitive science, data mining, machine learning, computational, computational finance, bioinformatics, virtual worlds, and gaming in other areas. He has published a dozen scientific books, nearly 90 technical papers, and numerous journalistic articles. Before entering the software industry, he served as a university faculty in several departments of mathematics, computer science, and cognitive science in the U.S., Australia, and New Zealand. He has three children and too many pets to count, and his spare time enjoys creating avant-garde fiction and music and the outdoors. Wow, if that's not a, an amazing biography, I don't know what is. So, Ben, welcome to Singularity 101. Uh, thanks for having me. Excellent. Let's not waste any time and jump straight into the questions. Um, would you share with us a little bit about your background and how you got interested in computer science and especially developing artificial general intelligence? Sure. I was interested in far future ideas from early youth, from reading science fiction novels primarily. From as early as I can remember, I started reading at age two and probably by three or four I was reading SF about superhuman AIs and space travel and time machines and robots, alternate dimensions, all, all the good stuff. And, you know, I always hoped that I would live long enough to see this stuff come to reality. But at this time, in the, in the early 1970s, uh, it didn't necessarily seem feasible that these things could happen in, in my own lifetime. And I actually had the idea to build a spaceship and travel at faster than light speed <laughs> so that exploiting relativistic time dilation, I could then come back, say, a million years in the future when all this awesome stuff would have happened. So it's, it's a source of great delight to me that it now appears plausible. I, I can see the stuff like within decades rather than having to go away into space and, and come back to the Earth of a million years later. In terms of my specific research focus now on, on AI, both with a view toward building superhuman thinking machines and with a view toward using AI to cure longevity, or, <clears throat> let me re-say that, 
but both both with a view toward making human level and superhuman thinking machines and with a view toward using AI to ensure longevity and cure disease and help us all live forever. I really focused on these things in my late 20s. I mean, I, I was interested in all sorts of things ranging from unified physics to nanotechnology to AI, bioscience, uh, pure mathematical modeling of the mind. I was even interested in, in sort of uh, Zen Buddhism and in in composing music that could, could help uh, enlighten people's minds by sort of triggering the right neural responses. I mean, and, you know, so I, I came to the conclusion at a certain point in my life that I would have to focus on one thing if I was going to do something great. Uh-huh. And when I, enumer- when I enumerated all the possibilities, I was really drawn to AI. It had always been one of my main interests. But it occurred to me at a certain point, you know, time travel could be possible by, say, twisting a star into the right shape to make a naked singularity which is elongated rather than a point. Or, say, nanotechnology could be possible if you made machines to build smaller machines to build smaller machines to build smaller machines to build smaller machines. You know, life extension could be possible if you build the right drugs. Uploading a human mind into a computer could be possible if you build the right brain scanning equipment. But all these things require a lot of engineering and a lot of people and a lot of money. AI, you know, quite possibly all you got to do is type the right program code into computers that we have right now. And you have a superhuman thinking machine. And this was sort of marginal when I first really, really seriously started working on, on AI in the, the early 90s. Now computers are so much more powerful. I, I really think that's that's quite definitively true. Like if if way less than Google's computing resources were devoted to making a thinking machine, then you know I, I think we could have a vastly superhuman and hopefully beneficial intelligence. It's just typing the right code. Just a problem of understanding what to do, and that, that's what's so appealing about it. So, speaking of typing the right, the right code, then, uh, th- it does seem that, in your opinion, AI would be a matter of software rather than hardware, because you already said that, in terms of hardware, way less than Google's hardware <laughs> capabilities would probably be sufficient if you have the, the right software. Is that the case? I think so. 50 years ago, AI was a matter of hardware and software, and the computer hardware industry has made incredible advances, not because of AI, but because of people trying to make computers to serve other purposes. And now, I think, due to the amazing work of so many engineers building better and better hardware, now we're at the position where AI basically comes down to, to a software problem. This is not to say that better hardware wouldn't help. I mean, the, the whole von Neumann computer architecture, which underlies our current computers, mm-hmm. is not really optimal for artificial general intelligence. I, I really like uh, massively parallel architectures, yeah, like the connection machine. Yeah. But 
I mean, you know, we're getting at the same thing in a different... Times more parallel processing power than what we are capable of producing right now. I mean, uh, no. million times more... Ab- ab- absolutely not. No. It's, a, it's a naive misconception. Mm-hmm. The, the, the point is that current chips are just massively faster than, than the neuron. I mean... We have many, many neurons, but each of them operates many orders of magnitude slower than the, than the computer chip. So we can do just as much processing or, or more with a distributed network of processors. So you make but up with speed for the lack of parallelism. You can make up with speed for the lack of parallelism. However, it makes life complicated because it means you need to use a different architecture. Yeah. And this comes down... To one of my differences with Ray Kurzweil and the whole school of thought that the best way to achieve human-level AGI is going to be by emulating the human brain. I mean, yes, absolutely, 100%, that can work. However, the hardware infrastructure that we have now is far from ideally suited for emulating the human brain in, in depth because... The human brain is a massively parallel analog or quantum computing system, whereas the digital computers that we have are distributed networks of very fast processors, Mm -hmm. which are classical digital computers. Mm -hmm. It's a different kind of computing fabric, which means that just emulating the human brain, of course it's going to work, but it's going to require more processing power than building an equivalently or more greatly intelligent system, which is more appropriately tailored for the hardware infrastructure at hand. So in that sense, if you are sort of disconnecting the uh, invention of AI from the simulation of, of, from the mapping and the complete simulation of the human brain, then that could happen potentially earlier or later, uh, but not necessarily connected to that point in time. That's right. Can it I happen earlier? It can in happen tomorrow. Yeah. Tomorrow? No, probably not. It could, have <laughs> happened, it could have happened last year and nobody told us about it. I mean, yes, I, I think the two achievements of mapping and simulating the human brain mm-hmm. versus creating human level or greater than human level AGI. I think these two achievements need not be closely synchronized with each other. Now they they may in fact be closely synchronized with each other. I'm not saying there is no relation yeah. between them, but it's not a necessary relation. And I I think that if Either adequate funding, adequate volunteer manpower, or adequate good luck is achieved by some AGI project in the near future, then I think we will achieve human-level AGI through non-brain simulation-based means mm-hmm. before the human brain is mapped. Well, let me stop you there on the adequate funding uh, thought. Uh, I was reading your uh, article, How Long Until Human Level AI, results from an expert, expert assessment. 
And one of the surprising uh, conclusions or results that, that you have there is that overall experts, and that's a quote, experts are skeptical about the impact of massive research funding, especially if it is concentrated in relatively few approaches. So yeah. are you in, in contradiction to the overall expert opinion here or do, do you fall within that? Because you just said that given I do, funding, I, we would expect uh, results. Whereas it, this seems to suggest that, I mean, what is adequate funding? Do we have adequate funding right now? Right now, the field of AGI research is funded very poorly. Hmm. As, as compared, for example, to medical research, uh, research on breast cancer or heart disease. I see. As compared to research on particle physics, in which they'll spend $100 billion on the giant accelerator. Yeah. As, as, as compared to many other aspects of science and engineering research, even as compared to some other fairly wacky stuff like nanotechnology research. Although there you have to look, and in many cases the most forward-looking aspects of those branches of research aren't being well-funded either. For instance, loads of money for heart disease and breast cancer, but the NIH will not fund much research specifically on life extension. Mm -hmm. Nanotechnology, plenty of research on nanofabrics and lubricants, yeah. not much research on Drexlerian molecular assemblers. And in AI, the situation is even worse because the total pool of funding on AI isn't all that big. And then AGI, the quest to build artificial general intelligence that can think with the generality and scope that people can, I mean, that's a, that's a tiny sliver of a small amount of AI funding. Now, the survey that you're talking about, the question that we asked regarding massive funding was, what would happen if $100 billion was yeah. put into to AI funding? On the other hand, for my own AI project, what I would like is something like $5 million a year for, say, five to 10 years. Mm -hmm. And th there's a big gap between those two numbers. So I you're think, saying $100 billion is too much, but right now we have too little. I don't know that $100 billion is too much if it was well spent. Mm -hmm. I think that most people don't have a good conceptual framework for how to spend $100 billion. <laughs> I, I, I do. So if you give me $100 billion, <laughs> I, mean, I, I could spend it very well. But I've, I've probably spent more time thinking about how to spend $100 billion than than most AI researchers. I think the feeling of the AI researchers responding to the survey was that if, you know, a billion or a hundred billion dollars was put into AI research, it would become some huge, wasteful government boondoggle where all the money was siphoned off into large, meaningless projects, which certainly happens occasionally with, or more than occasionally, with large government expenditures. Say, it could turn out like the Japanese fifth-generation AI project, where a lot of money was put into one specific approach, declarative logic AI in prologue, and it, and it didn't pan out. And I think the, the feeling of the respondents to that survey was there's 
a bunch of AGI projects that could make use of millions up to tens of millions of dollars each. And the best approach would be to throw that amount of money at each of these projects and see where it goes. But, you know, there may be no more than a few dozen such projects that are really mature right now. Say a few dozen projects on the planet working toward AGI that are mature enough to make good use of, say, 20 to $50 million. Mm-hmm. So if you had 20 projects, each of which could make good use of $20 million, I mean, that's a lot more money than I have in my bank account <laughs> by, by orders of magnitude, but it's still not $100 billion. So I think that was what is underlying the yeah. response to the survey. But I, I do think it's, it's quite absurd in a sort of world historical sense that not just my own project, but the other couple dozen AGI projects are not funded to the tune of a, a few million dollars a year. When, when, you look at, when you look at what is at stake, right? Mm-hmm, I mean, if, if you had 20 AGI projects, 5 million a year, you're talking $100 million a year. Yeah to work on creating superhuman thinking machines at a time in history yeah. when it really is quite palpable awesome. to do so. Yeah. And, inst- I mean, you know, we spent a trillion bucks bailing out banks and <laughs> the U.S. government alone in the last couple of years alone, probably another trillion dollars that the Federal Reserve spent surreptitiously bailing out banks without publicly announcing it. Trillions of dollars, right? We're talking $100 million to fund 20 AGI projects at at a fairly satisfying level. And our society simply is not organized to do such a thing. And that's that's something that – this is something that our AGI descendants are going to look back on and think is, is quite ridiculous. (laughs) <laughs> I agree entirely with you, but my next two questions are still on this topic with a couple of new dimensions, I hope. One of them is uh, the origin of funding. Um, I was listening to a, to a speech by David Chalmers uh, that he gave in uh, West Point Military Academy, and uh, one of the reasons why cadets from the academy concluded that it's best if they proceed with this development of uh, uh, military artificial intelligence uh, rather than abandon it despite the risks uh, was that you see if, if it's not an American singularity it's going to be most likely a Chinese singularity so uh, the, the American singularity we have control over but a Chinese one we don't therefore we'd rather move on despite the risks so you you have you work uh, in China, you have a position, a professorship position there. Do you think that the Chinese are taking a different approach in terms of funding AGI research than, uh, say, most people in North America and in Europe? And do you think that uh, they have a, a lower, equal, or better chance of, of coming up with, with a Chinese AGI rather than anyone else? I have spent a lot of time in China in the last couple of years working on AI. So I'm, I'm an adjunct professor in an AI lab at Xiamen University in China. And 
I also am involved with Hong Kong Polytechnic University, and this is a kind of exciting announcement. Like just this month, we're starting a two-year project at Hong Kong Polytechnic, mm-hmm. where we'll have six programmers working on making an open cog-based intelligent game character. So using my AI system, which is oriented toward working toward human-level AI, using that to make a smart game character. And we'll have four AI guys and two game programming guys working on that. So uh, I expect to be spending a considerable portion of 2011 in China and or Hong Kong. I think that the whole AI R&D seen in China is much less mature than in the U.S., mm-hmm. and that is both a plus and a minus. So the U.S. has a lot of AI achievements, more than anywhere in the world, yeah. and we also have a very entrenched infrastructure, both in academia and in industry. So, you know, DARPA, the U.S.'s uh, military research funding agency, has funded a lot of AI research. Yeah. But they tend to have funded the same teams of people, the same lineages of researchers, and the same sets of ideas over and over and over again for decades. And Google is an AI company. And Microsoft has awesome AI research teams. But what these guys put their money into, again, is fairly stereotyped. I mean, they're the world's best in computational linguistics, scalable probabilistic reasoning, Bayesian nets across thousands of machines. So we do certain things very, very well, and we put a lot of money into these things, rule-based expert systems, Bayesian nets, computational linguistics, supervised machine learning. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we kick the world's ass at this stuff. On the other hand, more radical AGI research or more radical narrow AI research that doesn't fit the mold of what the U.S. AI establishment likes has a lot of trouble getting funding or getting attention. China doesn't have an entrenched AI establishment. And this is both a plus and a minus. It means there's a lot of Me Too AI research there where Chinese AI researchers, you know, they want to publish papers in Western journals because that's what they get rewarded for. And so they just take stuff that Western researchers did and kind of vary on it, improve it, copy it a bit, and... Mm-hmm. It's high quality because these are smart people, but it isn't that revolutionary. On the other hand, there's also a willingness in China just to throw resources at anything that seems cool and interesting because they don't have a fixed idea of what's going to work and because they know they're behind. So they just got to try a lot of random stuff and see what works and hope some wild thing will will let them leap ahead. And I think that's... Part of what I see is the reason why we got funding for OpenCog in Hong Kong from the Hong Kong government Mm -hmm. and in in China from the Chinese National Science Foundation. It's not so much that they had a profound insight that, yes, Ben's ideas are brilliant. It's more that they were willing to try something new, different, and and cool. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's research. Maybe it works. Maybe it doesn't work. And this is something I think is important because... In AI, and also in in biology, and stem cell research, longevity science, China is more willing to take risks than America is. And I think that's a key point. It's it's not so much that their economy 
has some benefits over ours because our economy has many benefits over theirs. It's not so much that they have more people because, you know, 60% of their population is, is still quite poor. And although they're literate, they don't have the mindset for high technology development. Mm-hmm. I think that the main thing they have going for them is they're willing to take risks. And we, we've become complacent, conservative, and, and set in our ways. And that's, that's a problem. We, we, bring in, we bring in the smartest people from around the world who want to come to the U.S. and, and make a name for themselves. But once they get here, they then get slotted into the same entrenched things that everyone does here. So, I mean, a, a smart AI guy comes here from China or India, and, you know, they'll get a job at Google, and they'll do statistical linguistics. But if, if they stay in India or China... You know, maybe they'll do nonsense because they're cut off from the main streams of advancement. Or maybe they'll do some wacky off-the-wall thing that no one would ever get paid to do in, in the U.S. But in China, they're more open-minded. And it's, it's a source of great irony to me that a fairly totalitarian government, which is making efforts to, to open up tentatively, and I, I think that's laudable, but still... A government that doesn't focus on freedom yeah. as much as ours does, in effect, gives its researchers much more freedom than we do. Because I mean, they, of course, in the U.S., you have the freedom to research whatever you want. No one will lock you up. But, but if you don't have well, the funding, but you won't get paid. Yeah, right. You won't get tenure if you're a young researcher. Whereas in in China, it's easier to make it as a university researcher doing weird stuff. That is in the U.S., mm-hmm. and that's uh, that. That should disturb people, but it it doesn't because people tend to focus on on the wrong things when they think about China. Now, Peter Thiel got it partly right. P- Peter Thiel, who's a, the head of, of Clarium Capital, one of the the early funders of Facebook. You could see him in in the the recent Social Network movie. There's an actor portraying him, and he. Uh, was the leader of PayPal for a while. I, I don't agree with, with Peter on everything. We, we have a lot of differences, both in political philosophy. I mean, he, he's kind of a hardcore libertarian, whereas where, where, so I'm not. And he's more skeptical of AGI being achieved in the near term than I am. Mm-hmm. But I think he, he got some things right about China. He, he said the following in, in a speech I heard him give. He said, China gets a lot of things wrong compared to the U.S., but they get one important thing right, and it's such an important thing that they may make up for all their mistakes. What they get right is they're willing to think for the long term. They're willing to plan for the next 30 years, and the U.S. plans for the next quarter. And you can see that in research funding. The U.S. funds what they think will be successful in the next couple of years. China will try a bunch of random stuff and see what's going to work over the next few decades because if they try a hundred weird things five of them may work awesomely then they'll be ahead of the u.s 10 or 20 years from now and this is something i see in in silicon valley because you know i live in maryland in near washington dc but i I visit silicon valley a lot and everyone asks well you know you you look like you belong in california and (laughs) there's people doing people doing so much cool ai stuff in california you know, why aren't you there? And 
You know, honestly, I might be, if not for various personal reasons. I, I share custody of my kids with my ex-wife who lives in Maryland. But I have mixed feelings toward the whole attitude and, and vibe of the, of the San Francisco Bay Area. I mean, it's amazing how many futurists there are, how many AI people, how many brilliant technologists there are. On the other hand, anytime you have a group of people who think they're smarter than everyone else and who are all kind of thinking the same way, you got to be a little bit skeptical that these, these guys are... concerned about groupthink. There's a lot of groupthink, and there's a lot of short-term thinking there. Yeah, mm -hmm. I mean, those guys are creating Web 2.0, which is brilliant, and they're going to create Web 3.0 or 4.0, whatever those turn out to be. But the whole focus on making companies that are going to turn into N billion dollar companies and get a million eyeballs or a billion or a trillion eyeballs looking at your website, Th this whole focus, you know, it, it's transforming the world in an important way. On the other hand, it may be overtaken by someone else who's intent on transforming the world in a yet more radical way, you know? Mm -hmm. I see. And th that could come out of China or somewhere else that's thinking at a left field. I mean, just like Silicon Valley overtook the world by coming out of left field. No one was thinking a couple hackers in their garage were going to kick the world in the ass and change everything. Now everyone is thinking a couple computer hackers in a garage are going to make a website that's going to rule the world. So maybe the next big transformation isn't going to come out of a continuation of that pattern. You know, Maybe it's going to come out of... Is uh, Yaman University in China? You know, I don't even want... Yeah, I don't even want to say out of left field because that's a baseball metaphor, right? Which is which is an, which is an American thing. So, yeah, it, it's it's going to come out of mysterious Chinese chi power. That's it. I I don't know. <laughs> Let me uh, just stop you here for a moment and ask you to to help us define and focus on the the main terms that we've been using here for a while now, because some of our viewers may be confused. What is the difference between artificial intelligence? and artificial general intelligence? Uh, the name. No, there's more than that. Uh, <laughs> so the field, of, the field of AI, you know, when the field of AI was founded, it meant AGI. It meant artificial general intelligence. When it was founded in the late 50s and early 60s, these guys were after making human-level thinking machines. Yeah. And... One of the main lessons that was learned in the decades since is, wow, you know, it's possible to make programs that do stuff that requires vast general intelligence for humans to do them, but the computer program has no general intelligence, and it's just a trick. Like chess. And this wasn't obvious. Yeah, like, like chess, like Google, yeah. Google's search engine, like unmanned automated vehicles that can autopilot for, for a while. I mean, a lot, lot of stuff like that. Hold on, I'm going to go shut my door because my son started playing the piano. I think he's going to hear it. Sure, So I think that was a non-trivial lesson that mm -hmm. narrow AI is possible, right? And Since we've learned that lesson that it's possible to achieve some vastly intelligent functions 
by tricks, then a distinction has to be made between what Ray Kurzweil labeled narrow AI, which is programs that achieve apparently very intelligent functions, but in a highly domain or task-specific way, and then general AI, which contains the ability to generalize and transfer knowledge from one domain to another to learn new things that weren't anticipated by the programmer and, and so forth. But not everyone accepts this as an important distinction because some folks believe that narrow AI can be progressively grown into general AI. And I don't think that is true. To me, to me that's like, uh, I don't know, it, 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 it's like trying to do spaceflight by making bouncier and bouncier pogo sticks or something. <laughs> I mean, it's a, you, 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 need, you need a different principle. And I think from the outside world, it may come to appear that AGI comes naturally out of narrow AI. But when you look at the details, it, it, it's not going to be that way, that way at all. I mean, it, you know, if, if Google were to fund AGI, which they're not doing, really, then potentially they could release AGI as like, oh, this is a search engine that you chat with rather than one that just gives you web pages. Then to the world at large, it would appear that narrow AI had gradually morphed into general AI. Mm-hmm. But I think if Google were to achieve that, it would be because they had some team of people working for five years on building an AGI system quite distinct from, from their whole narrow AI infrastructure. So if Google is not interested in, in funding AGI, would it be DARPA and the military who would be interested in funding it in, in North America? Um, many are interested in funding it in principle. So far, no one is funding it in a serious way in practice. I mean, if you listen to the Google founders, Larry and Sergey talk in speeches, they say Google's an AI company, and they do, they do want to build AGI. I mean, th- these guys are involved with Singularity University, yeah. you know? Yeah. On the other hand, if you talk to Peter Norvig, who I know, who is their, Google's director of research, I mean, he, he thinks it's a bit too early to make a frontal attack on the AGI problem. And that He's we should a kind time of sneak pessimist up. in your paper here. Not even, not even, because he, he thinks we can get it by the middle of the century. He just thinks it's a couple decades too early, not centuries too early. Mm-hmm. So in the paper you're referring to, well, we surveyed various AGI researchers about the time to human level AGI. There was a cluster of folks who thought it would be in the next few decades, yeah. then a cluster who thought it was century, millennia, or trillennia off, you know, and... Norvig would be within the ones who think it'll happen in the next few decades, like within this century. It's Where just, would Ben Gertz be it, on that well, timeline compared with the rest of the experts? Did you do the, the, the questionnaire yourself? I, I did. I, I was not the most optimistic, but I, w- I was one of the more optimistic. I mean, I, I think we can have human-level AGI, say, within... Five and thirty years, depending on the amount of funding and attention that that goes into the problem. So that's, I would say, fairly optimistic kind of a time span. Three decades from now, I think that's fairly optimistic. We'll be around to see it, 
I hope so. You, you never know. I mean, the, 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 there's always the possibility of a narrow AI engineered uh, virus that, that annihilates us all. Well, speaking, speaking of annihilation, um, let me ask you this. Uh, so, first of all, what's the correlation that you see between the creation of artificial general intelligence and the singularity? And second of all, what do you rate our chances of surviving it are, like in terms of percentage-wise? Oh, first of all, I think that artificial general intelligence is very likely to be what launches the singularity. Mm -hmm. So I, I buy into I.J. Good's notion of the singularity as an intelligence explosion. explosion. I don't think it's the only possible way, but I think it's the most likely possible way. And that if some other technology like genetic engineering, brain enhancement, or nanotech advances faster than AI, I think that technology will in short order be used to make AGI, which will then cause the next big burst, uh, accelerating things toward and beyond the singularity. And then what would and be our chances of surviving it then? I think my my confidence interval for that is is very wide. I mean, I, I don't, I don't, I don't have any basis to make a, a detailed, rational estimate of that. I also think the question isn't well posed. What does it mean for us to survive it? Does it mean for humans in their precise form. legacy form to survive, yeah. or do, does it mean that we get to fuse with the? super intelligent overmind in a way that we can experience and enjoy and kind of respects our integrity and experience? Well, Kevin Warwick, for example, let me elaborate a little more so see if we can get it. Um, Kevin Warwick, for example, has a very, very low estimate of our chances of surviving any singularity in our current form. He says that humanity is absolutely doomed. What he believes in, however, is that our merging with machines would allow us to survive it and go beyond on the other end of the singularity in a radically new form, either as cyborgs or as some sort of a machine-enhanced, super-intelligent, augmented beings or something like that. So as long, in my view, as long as there's some kind of continuity between Ben and Nick here and their sort of augmented... Uh, resulting beings which were augmented by technology on top of that and there's some kind of continuity between our memory and our experience and our knowledge I would believe that even though biologically we may not be the same if there's a continuity then we have survived it that that's my personal take on it well I think the class of futures that Kevin Warwick discusses are plausible ones that may happen. But I think Werner Vinge got it right when he said, after we have minds that are dozens of times smarter than us, none of us can really predict what the fuck is going to happen. And that, that's the bottom line. I mean, the confidence intervals is pretty wide. Kevin Warwick, he can say, if he wants to, that the human race is doomed, but how, how can he really know that? I mean, maybe 
maybe I will build or someone else will build a sort of AI babysitter, which is very smart and very powerful and will protect an enclave of legacy humans because it's programmed to do so. Yeah, but the I mean, impact how, on the how, future how you... world would be minimal. I mean, right? That's, I mean... A, separate, that's a separate issue as to than whether we survive or not. Mm, I see. I see. All right. Uh, I think we're coming very close to the end of our interview, so let me ask you the last two questions. Uh, first of all, if uh, our viewers and listeners want to find out more information about you, what are the best sources? Where should they go to look for, for that? My website, gertzel.org, has links to the various projects I'm involved with and li links to my uh, Twitter feed and, uh, and my email address and, and so forth. Mm -hmm. Excellent. So okay. And then um, if you have one message that you want to get across to all of the people who are going to see this video, what would you like it to be? That the future is ours to create. The singularity is not inevitable. A positive singularity is not inevitable. As, as far as we know, not much is inevitable. <laughs> and Seemingly fanciful things like AGI, human immortality, mind uploading, an end to poverty, scarcity, and disease. We're, we're fortunate enough to be living at a historical moment where these things are likely achievable for the first time in our lives. And most likely these things are going to be achieved by some small groups of people working really hard on them. And whatever your specific talents or tastes are, there's probably a good way for you to contribute toward one of these really important things and thus bias the odds of all of us surviving the singularity in a, in a positive way. That's fantastic. So my take on this would be, if you can do a blog and interview Ben Gertzel, do so. If you have a bank account with $100 billion, then by all means, yeah, yeah. We, we, we did Ben's we, contact information already. We, we, we didn't get into my plan for how to spend $100 billion, <laughs> but we can, we, 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 can, we can do that in another interview. Anyway. Absolutely. <laughs> okay, Ben, thanks a lot for... Uh, coming to All speak right. to Singularity one-on-one. -on -one yeah, thank, th thanks for interviewing me. It's good fun. Bye-bye.